Today's guest solves the big, hard, impactful problems. He's written a book on it called Regulatory Hacking, which is a guide on how you can get involved and solve problems within regulated environments. I think the models within there are fantastic, not just for regulated environments, but really anywhere. He's launched a company called 1776 that is all about breaking down the borders of innovation, and he now leads Helm as the CEO, where they're building a platform to drive more civic engagement and impact. Please welcome Evan Burfield. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Evan, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So you're a very busy man. Lots of different companies that you've started, a book, a, you know, book that you've written. I, I'd love to start with your book, Regulatory Hacking, because um, I've read it recently. And it was written in 2018. And I'm curious when the pandemic hit, if you if you thought about re-releasing it with the tagline of, I told you so. <laughs> um, you know, you know uh, the temptation was there. But you know, what's actually been great, honestly, is I, I get probably every week an email from, you know, some entrepreneur somewhere in the world who's, you know, read the book and is putting the ideas into practice, asking for advice and guidance. And the the sort of creativity and the kind of potential impact of, of the different ideas that people are working on. And, and if the book helped them in any way or inspired them in any way or, or gave them a better playbook, like that's that's deeply fulfilling from my standpoint. What lit the fire under you to write that book? What was the inspiration? You know, the I, I had this incredibly, just incredible opportunity uh, when I was, you know, building and running 1776 with with my co-founder Donna to just get to get to work with these incredible entrepreneurs and and the focus of 1776 really was on what I would now call kind of regulatory hacking startups, but it was it was startups who were you know, attempting to apply the kind of classic Silicon Valley startup playbook to these really gnarly, hard public interest problems. Um, you know, how do we make our schools uh, more effective at educating all children? How do we mm. uh, how do we improve public health and how do we improve personalized medicine? How do we um, make government more responsive and help citizens to engage more in their communities? Uh, you know, all, all of these sort of uh, any, climate change, right? Like really difficult, gnarly problems. And, and over time, what we started to figure out is that, you know, there was this incredible wealth of material available out there online, right? You could go read the, the essays of Paul Graham. You could go get, you know, all these incredible materials from YC or 500 Startups or, or First Round Capital, all this great stuff, you know, about how you build startups in a regular context, right? I want to build a new app to, to date or I want to build a, 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 a way to kind of get food delivered to me, whatever it is. But that when you tried to apply that playbook to these really hard, gnarly public interest problems, you, it often broke down because you, you had to navigate and deal with government, right? Either because government mm. was setting the rules of the game and, and, and driving incentives, and you had to in some way change the rules or, or create new incentives, or because in some cases, literally, government was your, your customer, right? You had, to, mm -hmm. you had to figure out how to sell to government. And the Silicon Valley playbook actually often gives you wrong ideas about how to do that. And so the book kind of came from what I learned, really, from, from these incredible entrepreneurs. 
and I tried to kind of craft it together into, um, you know, a real, a real guide and, and some kind of generic principles that you could apply to these problems. They're great. I especially love the concept of the power map. And <laughs> I think that's also a great example where it doesn't have to just apply to a regulatory environment. You know, I think stepping back from just your ideal persona and your user personas and really like figuring out the whole flow of power and influence is, is um, huge. I, I'd love you to expand a little bit on, on power maps. Yeah. So there's a tendency, I think, and I, when I use the phrase sort of Silicon Valley, I don't literally mean, you know, like a couple of counties south of San Francisco, the Bay Area. I, I mean, more of kind of a mindset or an attitude, right? A, a, a network of people who tweeted each other a lot, right? Like right. between VCs and a certain set of founders. And a large and, echo chamber in, in very many large different echo cities. Chamber, yeah. yeah. There's, there's often a sort of mindset still to this day, right? Even, even after everything we've been to over the last, you know, two years. And there's often a mindset that Anything that imposes any constraint on, you know, an entrepreneur's ability to kind of build some new thing is bad, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I always refer to it as a certain Ayn Randian, except they never grew and evolved from being 15 and reading Ayn Rand and, you know, like <laughs> kind of mindset, right? Where it's sort of this, this, this very simplistic libertarianism, you know, whereas, you know, that's just not reality. And, and that mindset often goes, oh, my God, insiders are, are stacking the game against me. Hmm. And you go, well, you know, yeah, to some extent, maybe. And there is absolutely regulatory capture and there's rent seeking and there's lots of bad behavior that goes on. But the basic premise that, you know, we live in a democracy and, and in a healthy, well-functioning democracy. And, and I'd be the first to say we're not always there in America, but that's that's the aspiration, right? In a healthy, well-functioning democracy, you know, policymakers are supposed to listen to various stakeholders and groups and craft rules that make sure that markets operate in the public interest. Right? Mm -hmm. That's how it's supposed to work. And as a business or as, an, as a collection of businesses, as citizens, as collections of citizens, we have a right to assemble and communicate and to petition government and communicate to them what it is that we need. And, you know, inevitably, when when I was advising startups at 1776, or even now, you know, in, in our venture portfolio or companies I've invested in as an angel, they almost always start from a place of not remotely understanding the game that they're playing. Mm. And that's not a bad thing, right? They're often coming at these industries as outsiders with really cool, big, new, disruptive ideas. And that's great. But, like, any one of these industries, healthcare, education, transportation, anything involving energy or climate change, government services, right? These are, these are very sophisticated markets. There are people who are currently very involved in setting the rules. And some of those people really are operating earnestly in the public interest, even if you might disagree with them. Some are not. Some are pursuing their own private special interest, right? That's the game. If you don't understand that game, if you don't understand what the chessboard looks like, if you don't understand who the players are and what their interests are and what their capabilities are, you are at a massive disadvantage. And no amount of, you know, but but I, I have a better idea or but if you just do this, everything will be great is going to get you there. And that's that's the basic premise of the power map, right? You you have to understand the game you're playing and where the chess pieces lie and what those chess pieces can and can't do. That makes a lot of sense. And I feel like there's a, there's a very natural pattern where 
people just tend to steer clear of it, right? And so if, if you're trying to do something innovative or disruptive and you keep hitting these, these, these roadblocks, you just steer clear of it. You go a different direction, right? And so then these hard problems never really get solved. You know, I think, I think there's been, I, I would say five, six years ago, you were, you were still, eh, six, seven years ago, you were still at a place where people just steered clear. Mm. I, I remember, or, 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 or thought they were steering clear, right? They didn't want to operate, VCs didn't want to fund startups, they were operating in markets where there were sort of gatekeepers and where politics could get in the way. And I, I remember this, I think I cite this in the book, but this really, it still sticks in my head. I was down at South by Southwest and, and I was at this sort of private VC dinner and I'm sitting next to, you know, it was a New York VC, but a pretty prominent New York VC. And I was kind of explaining a lot of the, the premise uh, of around 1776, right? We help startups who are trying to solve these big public interest challenges and, and help them navigate government. And he goes, oh, we would never, we would never invest in a startup that has regulatory risk. <laughs> I kind of look at him. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah. We just, we just don't want to deal with that. We don't want to deal with gatekeepers. We want, we want startups that can, you know, win on the merits. And then he pauses and he goes, well, we did invest in this one startup that's uh, sending drones flying through cities to do LIDAR <laughs> scans of everything in the city for targeting outdoor advertising more effectively. And I'm kind of looking at him and he goes, well, I guess there might be some regulatory risk in that one. And I'm like, <laughs> one I mean, think. yeah, but there was still this mindset that uh, you tried to avoid regulatory risk. And then I think you went through a wave where, you know, Uber was incredibly successful early on, right, in kind of going after mm -hmm. this, this really classic rent-seeing regulatory capture behavior in all these cities around the world. You know, and again, I have this really poignant memory of, of having a conversation with in, in, in Silicon Valley with this another different, very prominent VC. And I was once again explaining the premise of what we do. And he goes, oh, why do you have to do any of that? You know, Uber has demonstrated that if you just stack up enough capital, you can just roll government. <laughs> and I was like, hmm. And, and literally what was going through my head at the time was you're assuming that the Uber that the Uber story is over, right? You're assuming that, right. that it just doesn't take a while for government to kind of catch up to what's happening here. Um, but even so, you know, Uber was such a, and, and I talk about this a lot in the book, Uber was such an incredibly unique outlier, right? In terms of the particular industry they were in, the dynamics in that, what they were bringing to it that just don't apply, right? It, it doesn't apply, it didn't apply if you were 23andMe and you were just going to, decide that the FDA shouldn't have a say in, in offering home DNA testing, mm -hmm. right? Which, which didn't, didn't end well, almost, almost killed 23andMe, right? And they had to take a major step back and understand their power map and build relationships. And, and, and it took them a, a three, four-year arc before they could actually start offering, you know, health advice based on their home DNA tests, right? They had to kind of you know, feed off the land for a long time off of just doing sort of ancestry and and all of this kind of stuff because they didn't they didn't understand that the FDA is a very, very different beast than, say, thousands of local taxicab commissions in cities all around the world. Right. Or an extreme version would be like a, a Theranos. Mm -hmm. Right. Like eventually fake it till you make it when it involves blood testing that people are relying upon to make life or death decisions is going to end tremendously badly. 
right? You 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 really need to be on your game if you're doing that stuff. Yeah, because it's you know when you know the trials going on now, and and when you see everything that happened in their playbook, you know I've been in software a long time. It's pretty much what I've seen every software vendor mm-hmm. do, right? It's it, it was nothing new to me whatsoever. But when it's applied to when when lives are on the line, it's it's a it's a big problem. I I think what I love in addition to you you know your whole focus on truly understanding it and the the power map, and then also it can be influenced, right? It's 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 serves people oh, yeah. and, and you can navigate it. But also your concept of, you know, it doesn't, this work doesn't have to just live in the valley. It can, it can live closer to where the problem is, where the frontline workers are. And I had an aha moment when I was reading your book, because I always, I'm always telling my clients, we need to do more day in the life of the users, right? We need to do more site visits. But when I thought about regulatory environments, there's multi, there's usually multi-generational families that live, that work in, in those, in those regulatory environments. And not just that, but communities built out around a lot of like aviation or petroleum. And and I was like, geez, how the hell do you do a day in the life for an entire community of multiple generations of expertise? So, you know, why not move it there? And and I'd I'd love to hear, you know, some of your stories around, you know, moving the work to where the problem is and really embracing that culture. Well, yes, the most extreme version of that for me, you know, which has been a, a tremendous success story, certainly as as investors in the 1776 venture fund, is, you know, we were the very first checks into a uh, startup in East Africa that was transforming and has transformed, frankly, food logistics, supply chain, food supply in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, predominantly so far in East Africa, but kind of expanding across the continent. Like, the, when we invested in them. They had not yet built any technology, and they were delivering bananas uh, to mamambogas, to street vendors, in tuk-tuks from a, a one shipping container they had set up in one estate, basically a neighborhood in, in Nairobi. But they, they laid out the, the depth of knowledge and understanding they had about how massive the markets for fresh fruits and vegetables and fast-moving consumer goods in sub-Saharan Africa was how deeply inefficient and broken that market was, exactly where the leverage points were in order to transform that market, you know, what needed to happen. And, and, and I remember, you know, talking to these entrepreneurs, to, to, to Grant Brook and to Peter Nadojo, and was just, was just blown away. And, you know, every single question I asked, but how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? They had this incredibly vivid story. And they're like, well, we were just out you know, negotiating with the families that sell pineapples in this region of Kenya, or we were just dealing with, you know, police officials in in this region who were trying to do bribes on this access to this market, or we were just dealing with, and, and we we ended up investing in them uh, before they'd ever built any technology, because the the, hmm. the the understanding of the problem and how messy and and frankly dirty and hard this problem was, was just blow, blow us away. You know, and they've gone on now to raise 60, 70 million dollars at you know, increasingly impressive valuations from people like Goldman Sachs and and others, and, and are really transforming that market, right? Like, there's there's no amount of Washington D.C. or Silicon Valley do-gooderism that could ever possibly replicate the, the on-the-ground knowledge that you have. And and this is like a eight hundred billion dollar market, right? Like massive market. Wow. Take that extreme version. You can apply it to any one of these industries, right? It's it's. If you want to apply the blockchain to, I don't know, the petroleum industry, or if you have an idea for getting to net zero on uh, extraction of, of carbon fuels 
you know, quickly, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're probably going to gonna go be a member of Capital Factory uh, in Texas and in particular in Houston, right? It's yeah. just going to be hard, you know, sitting in, in New York or, or, or the Bay Area to, to really understand how you apply that concept. If you really want to do interesting, transformative things in, you know, precision agriculture and producing healthier food at lower carbon impact or lower water consumption, right? Like you probably have a lot of benefits being a startup in, in Idaho and in Boise, which has a great, vibrant startup ecosystem, right? And I think that element of as, as we sort of as we broaden our, our imagination on the sectors that need to be transformed. And we maybe get a little bit more real about where the really big problems in our society lie that we need to be applying entrepreneurship and capital and, and technology to go solve. You, you start becoming really obvious that, you know, there's a lot more interesting places that you should be building these companies or that you can access and tap into, to your point, in many cases, multi-generational depth of knowledge and insight and expertise and, and regulatory knowledge is a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about that vast depth of knowledge, it almost feels silly talking about a day in the life, right? Yeah, like hiring a, a SME and doing a few days in the life is not going to even make a dent in that, that much knowledge that's out there. You know, look, I always, I always say of all the sectors that I've invested into, um, or that we, we supported startups at at 1776, like education is always the hardest hmm. to, to sort of get a read on. And the reason it is, is because every one of us got educated. Somehow. And many of us went through the public school system and got educated. And if you're an entrepreneur or a technologist, you probably had a somewhat negative experience <laughs> going through traditional uh, education, right? You, you, you tend to have a kind of disruptive authoritarian mindset, and that tends to cause friction in institutional settings, right? So, so the incredibly large number of entrepreneurs who, went, who go, I went to school, therefore I'm an expert in how to transform education. <laughs> there's there's very 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 needed changes that need to happen to improve the quality of public education right absolutely and i i would argue there's almost you know no problem that's that's more important to the long-term health of our society than getting that right totally agree but but like it's not because the people in there aren't pretty smart and don't care right mm -hmm. you're not going to rock up going i i went to school so i have a transformative idea or, or, or maybe you, you do have a transformative idea because you went to school, but you got to go to school all over again. You got to really, really go understand what is it actually like to be a teacher? What is it like to be a school administrator? Like, why do school districts make the decisions that they do, right? Like, what is it like to be a parent? How, like, actually, how do you apply your idea to, to actually make it successful and to, and to prove outcomes, right? And to actually be able to measure that you are, in fact, improving outcomes for, for children and education. You know, and that's a, that's a really, really, really high bar for the sort of, hey, I went to school, I have a cool idea, I'm going to go start an ed tech startup. Yeah. And, and you're so true that the folks that are in there, they do have great ideas and they do want to change. And we've run plenty of workshops in these types of regulated environments. And it's, it can be a little bit of a bummer because you come up with so many great ideas. And for each idea... There's a you know, laundry list of all the reasons why, oh, that's right, we can't do that because of this, this, and this. And then I find that they just you know, sometimes stop there because they've been beaten down so many years. They're like, oh, I guess we won't be able to do any of these ideas. Well, but back to the point, it doesn't mean you can't do it, but you need to bring a level of sophistication. you got to understand your power map. you got to understand the rules. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the leverage points. And you have to recognize that like no amount of magical wish fulfillment will make, will make humans other than what they are, right? 
you hear in EdTech as an extreme version, well, teachers should do this, or parents should do this, <laughs> or administrators should do this. Why should they do it? Well, because if they did it, my idea would be really easy, or, or my idea could be so transformative. The, the trick is, you know, teachers are, are, are humans like anybody else, right? They, they work hard, they're exhausted, they're stressed out, they have way too many things on their plate, right? They want to go home and spend time with, like, at the end of the day, the relevant question is, have you actually gone and done the work? Have you done the day in the life? Do you really, really understand them to understand what teachers in fact will do? Mm -hmm. Not what you think they should do. Same thing with school districts, same thing with administrators. And in some cases, the answer is, well, a teacher's not going to do that because there's this rule. Well, can you change the rule? What would be required to change the rule, right? Why is the rule there in the first place? How do you, you know, how do you actually evolve the system to produce better outcomes and, and in some cases introduce new models or new technologies to help make that happen? Yeah. If more people realize that everyone won't do things exactly the way they expect it and see the view, the world exactly the way they see it, it'd be a, a much better place to exist in. And maybe that's a good segue into, you know, I, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing at Helm and because and, you are looking at, you know, how can we engage and evolve and leverage civic engagement, right? Yeah. I mean, you could take a very big through line through a lot of the work that I've done for the last 10, 12 years and you know, this sort of concept of, of, of being civic minded, of civic participation, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you care about the world, about your country, you care about people, like there's, there's really big problems you need to go solve. You know, if you want to go solve those problems, in a lot of cases, you're going to have to figure out how to kind of rally people to come support you. You know, while Uber probably took it way too far, like you do want to give them credit for the beauty of what they figured out early on, which was, oh, I can take an early adopter customer set and I can turn them into a grassroots army <laughs> to help drive policy changes in uh, in cities, right? Like that was a really, really fascinating insight. And, you know, people like Bradley Tusk who were advising, you know, Travis Kalanick on the early days, like so much credit for kind of blending together that sort of Silicon Valley model with um, a real insights of politics and grassroots and all that stuff. So, so I've, I've, I've generally been around that, but, you know... It's hard, it's hard to not look at the world right now and go, you know, our democracy is not in a healthy place. And, you know, it's very, I think it's very easy to kind of come up with simplistic, it's this side's fault or it's that side fault. And certainly I have a perspective on, you know, things that are happening that are particularly damaging to our democracy. But, you know, what we're very, very focused on through Helm is trying to kind of um, put aside sort of ideology and, and to the extent that we can, you know, partisanship and really focus it on the question of what's actually driving a more equitable future in the long term and how do we help to get more people in their communities, particularly local communities, engaged in doing the work to drive those things that lead to a more equitable future in the long term. And, you know, for me, given where I'm at, you know, I got a four-year-old and a six-year-old. It's it's hard for me to think of any problem more important to kind of tackle than making sure that they inherit not just a, a still functioning democracy, but in fact, a much healthier one than, you know, than maybe I inherited. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, with getting people reengaged in, in democracy in in politics in a much healthier way. And, and I think a lot of that is, is in local communities. And so we, we do a lot of that work at home. It's both tools, it's data, it's research. So it's a lot of kind of what's really working to say, hey, we want to give everybody organizing superpowers and 
we think that work should start first and foremost around issues that kind of impact your day-to-day life, and most of those are local issues. I love the through line. Yeah, I mean, because with the more engagement, the more understanding, and the more empathy, and the more kind of just, you know, taking responsibility for what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're creating. So I, I think, you know, it's that same idea of understanding your power map, engaging in it, and just hacking these problems at a local level and makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's 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 funny, you look at these kind of through lines that maybe you don't understand until they all come together in your head. But like, you know, at Helm, we talk a lot about the civic graph, right? We, we really, really want to understand and model out how, how influence flows, you know, between and among, you know, the 240 million eligible voters that make up our, our big, beautiful, messy, crazy democracy. And, you know, some of those, uh, some of the nodes on that graph, right, are, are more impactful, right? Some people can literally make a vote in a city council meeting or a state legislature that can change policy. And, you know, some people have close influential relationships with those people, right? The, that, that, uh, that civic graph is not, not untextured, right, in terms of who has relatively more power and who has relatively more influence over that. Well, actually, in a certain sense, that's just creating the power map, right? Like for everyone mm-hmm. yeah. and making it a whole lot easier for, for lots of different groups, entrepreneurs, but also social entrepreneurs who are trying to drive advocacy and organize people around issues and around policy changes to kind of do that work um, quicker and more effectively and, you know, be able to sort of engage people, you know, in a more in a more authentic and direct way. I, I often... One thing we talk a lot about at Helm is, is this idea that sort of the, the user experience of democracy isn't particularly good right now, mm. right? And, and oftentimes, even when you, you do choose to engage as an individual citizen of the political process, you often feel like you almost get sort of punished for it, right? <laughs> like, like in the simplest <laughs> way, like even when there's a politician that I'm inspired by, that I want to support, and I want to go give them 10 bucks or 25 bucks or a $50 monthly recurring donation or whatever it is. It's like I've disincentivized to do that because I know that the second I do it, I am going to get spammed every single day for the next six months by 250 politicians and causes and issues that I don't care about and I didn't want to support, right? Like really simple things like that. Like it, it, it almost trains us to have a really high bar, right? We were, we were doing a lot of user research around sort of super volunteers and, and local community organizers. And one of the, the key insights that was coming back is that, you know, even if they're the, the person who knows their neighborhood the best, right, they're the super organizer for the neighborhood, they know that they don't know all of their neighborhood or neighbor close to it, but they're hesitant to engage too much with people they don't already know because they don't want to get screamed at and they don't want to get yelled at. And they don't want to have these like really nasty, fraught conversations. You know, we think there's a lot that we can do with research and data and technology to to create a better user experience and to make democracy more rewarding and fulfilling and make organizing in our communities more rewarding and fulfilling. So that's that's a lot of the work that I'm doing right now. But I think it does connect back to a lot of the sort of regulatory hacking work. And, you know, startups that are operating the public interest are sort of this interesting subset of just broadly social entrepreneurship and how do we build a better world, a more equitable world? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, people are probably asking themselves, is it worth it if I engage? And it's funny that you said the UX of democracy, because I think back to the early days of UX, 
where we, we had that, that era where you, you had to justify why you would invest in user experience. Like I remember we used to have to like justify, Oh, you'll save this number of clicks or you'll have, you know, this, this less churn or this less training. Is it, is it worth it to focus on the UX? And, and maybe that's the stage that we're in as, as a, as a culture is, you know, is it, you know, we need to explain why it's worth it to engage in improving that user experience to get that engagement. I mean, you know, there's a number of things that that are sort of true all at the same time, a lot of which are in conflict with each other, right? We had the highest turnout election in 100 years in 2020. Well, that's that's encouraging in a certain direction. You could look around, you you could look around the world right now and like it would it would be hard if you're paying attention at all not to recognize that there are some really really profound challenges, right? In in public health, in 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 climate change, right? Like really profound challenges that that you cannot solve effectively, I would argue, without sort of democratic engagement in a healthy public sector. It's also true that people are just exhausted and burned out from politics right now, mm-hmm. right? And and the sort of you know, a lot of that I think comes back to the sense of like people know it's important, they are engaging, but the experience is not a pleasant or enjoyable or or often directly rewarding one. And so you you sort of keep hitting the urgency button and you keep hitting the, you know, this is the most critical thing ever if you don't do this tomorrow button. But you hit that over and over and over again and, and you're also just burning people out and and sort of undermining a healthy democracy in the long term. And those are those are hard problems and really important problems. And you know, I'm I'm just you know, it's a it's a really great opportunity to to get to play a role right now in trying to build something better. Well, you've inspired me as an entrepreneur and, and now with a four-year-old daughter, I, I want to solve the important problem. So, so thank you for the message and thank you for your time. But something I'd love to finish on is um, what is the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> you know, I, I took a somewhat non-traditional path. So I, I built my first startup when I was 19, uh, raised my first venture capital when I was 19 and, you know, eventually left that company when I was about 24. And, you know, we went through the dot-com boom, we went through the dot-com bust, got the company stabilized, and then I actually got fired by my board, which was a deliciously wonderful lesson at 24. (laughs) As always, almost all of the great lessons in life were ones that uh, were were very humbling at the time. But, Mm. you know, and I I was talking to one of my really close mentors, and I was like, oh, what do I want to do next? Like, do I want to go, I don't really want to go back to school. Like, I don't have a college degree, but what am I going to do? I want to sit in some freshman lecture hall. Like, I've I've just had this... incredible, incredible experience and learned all these things. My mentor, a guy named Fred Bowler, was like, well, you think about, you know, Oxford or Cambridge. That's a totally different model. It's not traditional lecture halls. It's, you know, reading books and debating and you'd be, you'd love that. Then I was like, yeah, yeah, I just don't know. Do I really want to go? And I applied, I got in and I was still like, yeah, I don't really want to go. And he goes, you know, Evan, you're, um, you're exceptionally good at, at convincing people that you're right here at the right point, age of 24. But if you really want to go do great things in the world, you're going to need to be right more often. And that actually mm. requires reason and logic and study and doing your homework. And um, that was one of those things that at first almost sounded like a compliment. And then I was like, ooh, that, that hurt. <laughs> but it, 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 it's, it's been true over and over again. And I think it's back to sort of the point you were talking about with, with power maps and, and a day in the life and, and doing your research. Like, you know, almost all of the worthwhile problems to solve are hard problems, mm. right? They're they're not going to, you know, just get solved because you're clever and you have a vision and you raise some capital, right? They really, really require 
a level of humility, a level of, of growth mindset, uh, doing your homework, digging in, really understanding what makes these markets and the people within them tick and, and where you can actually add value and where the leverage points are to, to do something really important and impactful. And that's something I, I often try to impart to you know, my team at Helm. Right. The more important it is, the harder it is, the more you got to do your homework, um, but also to a lot of other entrepreneurs who I get a chance to invest in or, or advise. That's great advice. You got to be right more often. And being right is not easy. It requires a lot gotta, of work. You, you got to go to school. You got to go to school. Well, Evan, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Appreciate no, it. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, George. Technology should serve vision, not set it. At Intevity, we design clear blueprints for organizational readiness and digital transformation that allow companies to chart new paths. Then we drive the implementation of those plans with our client partners in service of growth. Find out more at www.intevity.com. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.